listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Paige Wilson. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by IBM. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Thanks for joining us for episode 284. It's First Friday Q&A, Mark. It's First Friday Q&A. We're getting back to trying to get these things out on a regular basis. Sorry for the hiccup last month. And guess what I'm doing tomorrow? You'll never guess. Probably speaking you. at something. But guess where I'm speaking? I don't know. At the Coke Drum Forum. Oh, the Coke Drum Forum? Yeah, it sounds like some type of reference to a drug movie, doesn't it? Yeah, it's like <laughs> that's very cartel sounding. <laughs> yeah, no, Coker is a process in a refinery, and the drum is where the coking process or where the coking takes place. So it should be fun. I've never spoke at the Coke Drum Forum tomorrow. I'll let you know how it goes. Oh, just don't tell that lame joke. <laughs> I'm, no, I'm going to tell the other lame joke that you've heard a hundred times. Oh, God. They've well, never it's heard good it. thing. Well, it's good because I won't be there. Yeah. How about that? Speaking of not being there, who guess who was here? A reviewer. Okay, that was okay. That was, <laughs> that was an okay one. You want to read it? No. All right, I'll read it. Five stars. Great show. I've been listening to the show for years and really enjoy the content. Both hosts cover current events and give more context to clickbait articles that are anti-energy. In addition, I really appreciate the international viewpoints they provide to explain oil and gas markets. So this is from Robert G., who's a facility engineer for Chevron in the great metropolis of Midland. So Robert G., I really appreciate the review. People, if you want to leave us a review, we have a new way to do it. It's really easy. Just go to lovethepodcast.com forward slash OGTW, which is a lot to remember, or just go to the show notes and click on it. No matter what device you're on, we now have a tool to allow you to leave us reviews. We love the five stars. And you know what? If you don't like the show, not sure why you're listening, but if you don't like the show, <laughs> you know, tell us and leave us a four star. Or one star. I, 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 I kind of like those sometimes. They get me ramped up. Anyway. All right. So we're going to start off as usual with Ludwig. Why are you not bringing the interview podcast as on YouTube show as well on Rumble and Odyssey just to expand revenue in the message? Might be interesting to do that with the weekly show as well. So Ludwig, we actually do get a lot of requests for us to take the show on video. Honestly, it's too much work. We got a company run. We got multiple podcasts. I'm in my gym clothes. <laughs> Our listeners tend to listen to the show when they do other things like work out and commute where video is not recommended. So we have our live stream that we launched last year that is on hiatus. It's coming back for 2023. So for now, that's going to have to be the video show that you watch. But I do appreciate the insight. And as always, Ludwig, thanks for reaching out. You know we love you. Yep, yep, yep. All right. Next question is from Will Van Schoik. I hope I said that right. RD new product development at Axel. Why does diesel supply almost disappearing? Oil is in short supply relatively despite our blankety blank president's <laughs> <laughs> release SPR, yet price either holds or drops and stays below $100. Our government energy policy is negative. Shouldn't the price go above $100? Will. Yeah, so there's actually a lot in these four sentences. So the reason there's a diesel shortage is refining capacity. It's not about the raw feedstock, which by the way, it's harder to make a profit refining diesel from light sweet crude, which is what we produce here in the U.S., than heavy complex crude. It's It makes more financial sense to refine diesel from the heavier crudes. So that's why the constraint, and that's why diesel is in short supply, because the demand for diesel is going up, and it will continue to go up for the next two years. So you're seeing China open up from COVID. You're seeing people starting to fly around the world. And you go, well, Mark, what does diesel have to do with flying? 
Jet fuel is basically kerosene, which is one level down from diesel. It's still kind of the heavier weight stuff that's refined. And you're seeing construction pick up all over the world in agriculture. So mm-hmm. the demand for diesel is outstripping supply. And unfortunately, it will be that way for the next 18 months for two years. Then you talk about the price of crude dropping. We had the Russian sanctions kicked in actually today, which affected the market. Last time I looked, WTI was right up, right at $90 a barrel. I think we're going to stay around that price the rest of next year, regardless of what the U.S. government does, what OPEC does, what Russia does. And I actually go into this detail into my predictions, which will be released pretty soon. And then finally, you're right. Our government's energy policy is negative. Mm-hmm. It really is affecting Americans and the rest of the world, where when your policy leaders and your governments are anti-energy, it's not good for anybody. So, Will, I hope that answers your question. And you're right. And, and unfortunately, diesel prices are going to stay high. The industry is going to flourish as the rest of the world doesn't, unfortunately. All right. The next one is from James Rawson. Hi, Mark. I enjoy your podcast and find it very educational. I was wondering if you had any advice on how I might be able to make a career change into the oil and gas sector. I live near Chevron headquarters in San Ramon, California, and wanted to try and work for them. However, I have no experience in the industry besides investing in the energy sector. I'm finding it very hard to break into the oil and gas industry. James, I wish you would have told me what you did, which by the way, that is one of the most, as much as we dog California and we love you, California, that is one of the most beautiful spots in the world is the town of Pleasanton, which is right outside of San Ramon, which is where Chevron is headquartered. I thought they were leaving. So they're shutting down. They're, yeah, they're, they're shutting selling down their campus, one. right? Yeah. But that's what he's talking about, okay. which actually is a good thing. So James, you may have to move to Houston. <laughs> <laughs> they're going to actually keep a small group of people there, but they're selling the campus. Anyway, back to your question, James. And I get this a lot. People that want to come work in the industry and have no industry experience, and that's a big barrier. My suggestion to you is do a little bit of research. I don't know what you do now, but do a little bit of research on the charities and the charitable organizations that Chevron contributes to. You can go to their website and actually go look up their 10K, and they're actually listed in there. Along, It's probably listed under their whatever page they have about giving back. Then go volunteer for those charities. Go figure out what you're doing. You will then meet people at Chevron. You will learn how they try to help make the world a better place, who they hire, what they look for. And at the same time, you're actually helping their cause, which is only going to put you in a positive light. So without understanding more about what you do, that's at a broad level, that's probably the biggest piece of advice I give you is go volunteer for some of the charitable organizations Chevron supports. Also finding some of the oil and gas organizations in your area, that might be another place to go volunteer. That's going to take time, though. The volunteering for the charitable organizations would be a quicker way if you get in touch with people at Chevron. Well, at least Hopefully they, it helps. At least they invest in the energy. Yeah. So. All right. The next question comes from Britton Poole, Field Tech at the Wood Group. Hey, y'all love the podcast. So informative on current events and the entire sphere of oil and gas. My question today is how do I footstep my way into a better role within the industry? I'm on my 10th year in the field, four as a roustabout, almost six as an electrician. My dream is to produce my own wells, low producing or anything, but unfortunately capital is not abundant currently. I have great people skills and associate's degree from the University of North Georgia and I think that I would do well in the office. I feel like I've been branded a field guy and I just want to bust that ceiling and do a job that I would love. Thanks, Britton. Man, what a great question. And Britton, you're actually in a really good place. The field experience, I know you feel like you're boxed in as being the field guy, but the field experience is invaluable. So you talk about being an electrician, that's awesome. 
One of the things I do is, let's see, does it say who he works for? The Wood, Wood Group. Wood Group. So if you want to stay in the Wood Group, which is an engineering firm, EPC firm, I believe, actually, but heavy on engineering, they do a lot of heavy construction projects for the oil and gas industry. And somebody has to be in those meetings when they're talking about electrical requirements, when they're in the feed stage and the preliminary stage where they actually start putting designs down on paper. Well, they don't do it on paper anymore, where they start putting designs down on computer screens. So find out in the Wood Group who's in those meetings with your clients, like who's handling the electrical side of the Wood Group conversation with prospects and go make friends with him or her, right? And then let him know that you would like to be an asset to his team. You have field experience. And I'm telling you, in the feed stage, Jed, want to bring you in so that you're the one that can do the gotcha moments. Because a lot of times people hire up in the organization as far as management that have been removed from the field. Maybe you don't know that you can't get, you know, three-quarter inch EMT as easy as you can get half-inch EMT. Or it's easier to bend half-inch EMT than it's three-quarter or whatever. A lot of stuff that's in your head is actually super valuable at that feed stage. So if you want to stay within the wood group, that would be my recommendation since you have that electrical background. Now, if you're talking about the industry as a whole, dude, with your experience on the field side for somebody like the Wood Group, all you'd have to do is go find one of the smaller mid-size operators out there. So not the BPs, but think of like Devon Energy, stuff like that. And go let them know that you have all this field work, field experience, and that you'd like to look about coming on board in the office as somebody to help them with their project management, right? I mean, you would fit right into a project management or portfolio. All that field experience is super valuable. You'd have a desk job. and You'd actually be helping that operator on the other side of the fence manage and complete their projects on time and on budget from an electrical point of view because you have the experience. You've done it. So I think if you just kind of step out of your box a little bit and you know either find that person inside the wood group or go find one of the mid-sized operators and go talk to their portfolio or their project management team, I think they'd shoot you right in. Plus, I'm pretty sure you'd probably make a pretty decent pay increase. Yeah, yeah. All right. So Misty Fontenot, Wireline Field Tech Service Rep, KLX Energy Services. Love the show, guys, and have been listening to you for years. I will echo what the others have said in more regular episodes would be very much appreciated. It gets lonely in the, sometimes in the field, and being able to listen to you once a week would make my hitches go by much better. And yes, this is a subtle guilt trip, LOL. Paige, I really like how you handled the woman's question about the sports bras to wear under her FRs. That's such an awkward question, and I think I would have skipped it, but you handled it like a champ with elegance and grace. You rock. Do you read all the questions that come in, even if they are awkward? If so, you're braver than I would be. And please do the beauty blog. We do not read all of the questions. I think Mark kind of pushed that forward whenever we read the one about the lady wanting a husband in the space. So no, I mean, there have been times where I've had to stop mid question, just be like, nope, we're not saying that. I don't want to bring too much of my personal life into it. So I get some of those awkward questions. and But, you know, that'd be something I would say for the beauty blog. And thank you for the compliment. Yeah, Misty, we get some of the weirdest, strangest stuff. I don't even get to see all of it, Mark. I don't show them to Paige. They all come straight to me. We're now in every country on the planet, and we have millions of listeners. 99.99% of our listeners are great people, and then some of them are just strange. <laughs> well, and then we get a lot of sexual stuff, too. We, we get stuff that's very inappropriate. Very, very un- inappropriate. Very, very um, unprofessional. Very unprofessional. And so we try just to bring the questions in that we think are helpful to our audience. You know, I wonder if I should save all those questions we don't ever use. I just delete them. 
you know what? Might come handy one day. Might be good for behind the curtain. Behind the curtain. Oh, that might be a good episode. Yeah. If we ever do the after hours podcast. Uh huh. Yeah. So anyway, Misty, no, we don't really. And actually, I would probably say about ten percent of the questions, ten or fifteen percent of the questions that come in are unacceptable to read on the show. So it's a bit, probably yeah. a bigger number than you think it is. Yeah. I'm glad I don't see any of that. I have enough anxiety. Thank you. Okay, Mary Smith. I'm not sure if this is the right medium for this, but I work for a startup in the oil and gas industry, specifically iron and automation of artificial lifts. It's my first time in the oil and gas industry, and I was curious if you had any tips or tricks on how to learn as much as I can in order to be as effective in the industry. I work in marketing. Mary, I got the easy answer for you. Find your sales guys and ask them to take you with them on sales meetings. Couple of things. So first thing is your salespeople are the ones that are at the front lines with your customers around artificial lift. You're going to hear all these terms, all these acronyms that make no sense. That's okay. Don't make a face. Wait till the sales meeting is over and then pull your sales rep aside asking, what does that mean? And you'll learn very quickly. The other thing is as a marketing person, the more you hear what sales has to deal with day to day, the better you'll be at marketing because now you know what the sales, the clients are asking for, right? So this is kind of a win-win for everybody. It's a win-win for you because you can get pulled into client conversations early on. It's a win-win for your company because as you learn what the clients are looking for, you can help the sales team be more effective. And then finally, your sales team is going to love you because you can help drive better, higher quality leads for them as you listen, which by the way, that's how to convince the salesperson to bring you with you on customer calls is that by you learning what the customer's conversations are around and what problems the customers have, you can better market your solutions to drive more highly qualified leads for your salespeople. So that's an easy one. Reach out to your sales team, get them to bring you with you on client calls, and you're going to learn a lot very quickly. Okay. Michael Petrick asks, hello, Mark. I started listening to your podcast in late summer of this year. Absolutely love it. You and Paige are a dynamic team that gel perfectly together, and I find you both inspiring with the knowledge you are able to bring to the whole industry. I also admire both your views towards oil and gas industry as a family creates an awesome work environment to follow a career in. I recently began a six-month co-op engineering internship program with a upstream giant. I'm a mechanical engineering student. I did four months in the field and just now moved into the office and I have been doing exploitation work. I was absolutely clueless when I first began and the operations were a lot to take in. I am now feeling pretty confident and learning lots every day. My question to you, and maybe Paige could weigh in on this as well, is I have noticed that most of your background is in sales. I'm not sure 100%, but it does not look like you mentioned anything about working closely with engineering teams or even operating anything in the field, not taking any shots. However, I have noticed that you have a very wide technical knowledge of basically all operations. Multiple times you have mentioned things very specific to the field and things that mostly only operators and engineers take a look at and work with. How did you develop all of this knowledge if your focus is mostly in sales? Any resources or advice? In addition, any advice on bridging world politics to these technical areas that I'm learning about? would be cool to make an accurate prediction and develop the kind of critical thinking you possess. That's a lot. Yeah. Okay, Michael, a couple of things. You're right. My entire career has been in sales and oil and gas, right? And I love it. Most people outside of the sales profession think of salespeople as pushy whiners that are trying to make you buy something you don't need, mm -hmm. right? And unfortunately, there's some truth to that. There are a lot of those type of salespeople out there. I don't consider those people sales professionals. A sales professional is a problem solver. 
And in order to understand how I can help clients solve problems, I have to understand their business not as good as they are. They do. I have to understand the business better than they are, right? Combine that with my insatiable curiosity around how things work. I've been that way. I was born that way. Also, remember, my original company, Modal Point, which is still around, is a market research company, which means we're interviewing people in the industry about real problems and figuring out how we can help them solve those problems. So I literally every day I'm talking to people, CEOs, presidents, vice presidents. Then I'm talking to field techs, project managers, whatever, about stuff they're having to deal with day-to-day in the oil and gas industry. And then put all that together in a 25-year time frame, and I've learned a lot. And I've been very lucky. So in sales, I'll give you a perfect example. The first time I ever went offshore, I'm not going to tell you what the name of the company was. It's a big service company. This was in the 80s. And I said, you know what? I've never been offshore. And they go, meet me at the heliport on Wednesday. No Hewitt training, no background check. Because I was with the service company, I went offshore. And it went offshore. And he pointed, goes, this is a moon pool. This is a mud pump. This is what this does, right? Same way with the refinery. I had the refinery manager manager put me in a truck, drive me around the refinery and go, this is distillation. This is a coker. This is a cracker. And so by helping clients and by learning the industry from the ground up, combined with my insatiable curiosity around how things work, I've learned a lot and I've always done fair ethical business. I am the salesperson that will tell you no. No, I can't help you. No, I'm not a good fit for that. Here's another company that's a better fit for that. And when you do that, as long as I've been doing it and you're ethical and you really help people solve problems, you're not seen as a salesperson. You're seen as an asset to the organization and you're brought in behind the curtain. I can't tell you in my career in this industry how many times when there's massive layoffs that I've had very senior people in the industry call me to for a shoulder to cry on, you know, basically saying, look, I got to let go 20% of my engineering force and they're all good guys and girls. I'm not getting rid of the ones that aren't performing. I got to get rid of the ones that are performing. How do I deal with that? So, you know, it's a lot going on, Michael, but you put all that together. And that's why I know how the industry works. And I don't know it all. I literally learn something every day, something new, which by the way, Michael, it's one of the things in my calendar. I have four hours a month just to learn because this industry is always changing. You also remember that we're podcasters, we've been podcasters. This is the first, the largest, most listened to oil and gas podcast in the world. That gives us a lot of opportunities. We have companies and countries offer Paige and I all kinds of stuff. Come to this conference for free. Come kind of weird. Talk to our, you know, our OPEC minister of digital transformation. You know, come to Sarah Week, all that sort of stuff. So thank you for the compliment. I want to leave with a couple of things. A good salesperson is an asset to your team. So don't think of salespeople trying to push stuff down your throat. And then when you've been doing this long enough, you start seeing patterns. It's just just how the human mind works. And the fact that I have a market research background allows me to do that critical thinking part. Critical thinking is actually really simple. Critical thinking at its basis is the ability to predict what actions now are going to do in the future. What are the consequences? And it's a pretty simple thing to realize that if you slide a knife across your finger, the consequences, the critical thinking path is that you're going to cut yourself, Right. But can you think backwards to if that knife wasn't sharp, right, then it's more likely you could cut yourself because it may slip on the onion. And you, you just expand that time frame. So when I do my predictions, which actually will be out very soon, I've done these for, I think, seven or eight or maybe even nine years. It's not magic and it's not a crystal ball. It's me looking at what's going on now and predicting how that will affect the oil and gas industry for the next year. So I don't know if that answers your question, Michael, or not, but if you're looking to develop those type of skills Part of it's experience. There's no way to speed up having 25 years of experience. Yeah. But the other thing is, instead of being heads down all the time and getting your job done, which I know you have to do. I mean, I got to deal with it too. I get 100 emails a day that I got to deal with. 
spend some time, pick your head up and go talk to other people, different parts of the industry, learn what other people are doing. You know, there's a lot of stuff that I'm very weak in. I can talk about engineering and project management and I can talk about, you know, pipelines and refineries and I could talk about, you know, CO2 stimulation and other types of enhanced oil recovery. Ask me about oil and gas finance. That's a new world for me. I'm starting to learn about that stuff. So I don't know it all. There's just areas that I've been lucky enough to be exposed to for a very long period of time. And I got to learn it because when I go to sell things to these companies to help them with problems, I have to understand their business, like I said, better than they do. I don't know if that helps you or not, Michael. If you want to have a conversation around this, reach back out to me. We'll set up a call. I couldn't sell myself out of a wet paper bag. <laughs> No, you couldn't. <laughs> your, your face is too transparent. <laughs> I need some Botox so nobody can tell what I'm thinking. All right, let's get on to the next one. Benjamin Howard, graduate assistant at the University of Arkansas. Hey, Mark and Paige, thanks for having an awesome place to learn about new tech, oil and gas, and the state of energy in the world. I'm a master's of science and geology student at the University of Arkansas and always recommend your podcast to other students who want to get to know more about the industry. OGGN rules. <laughs> Yay. I have two questions. One, I want to hear your thoughts on CO2 injection for secondary stimulation of older historical wells. I feel like this is where more investment should go, but I don't hear too much about it. We have the wells, the targets, the infrastructure, and the proof of oil in the reservoir. Why isn't this more talked about in the community? You want to answer that before I move on to the next one? Yeah. So this is the point at a high level. I typically tell people that when you inject CO2 in a reservoir, it adds energy to the oil. That is actually correct. But since he's a rock nerd, I'm going to go a little bit deeper. So there's this term called miscability. What? Miscability. So think about it this way. Imagine if you're changing your own motor oil, which I know you've done before. Yeah. Imagine if you get oil on your tools. Now, you can try to wash it off with water, right? And it will remove a little bit of the oil, right? Mm -hmm. But if you use a solvent, it removes all of the oil, right? right? That's miscability. That's the ability of that solvent to combine with that oil and bring it to a different state so you can wipe it off so it doesn't stick to the tool, right? Mm -hmm. When you eject CO2... Well, let me back up even further. So you could take solvents and inject in a reservoir and you get all kinds of oil recovery, but it costs a lot. Those solvents come from petroleum products, right? So you need something that's dirt cheap that can combine with that oil to make sure that it's not as sticky to the rock. And CO2 is a perfect solution for that. So what's his name? Benjamin. So if you really want to get deep in that, go check out Denberry Resources. I firmly believe they're leading the world in enhanced oil recovery using CO2. And not only do I believe it, I think ExxonMobil believes it too, because I think ExxonMobil is going to go buy them soon, <laughs> maybe even when this podcast comes out. But the reason it's not more talked about, it's an economics thing. you got to pay for that CO2. Now, I'm going to get to something really cool in a second after this. But So when you're looking at the well and you're looking at older wells, does it make sense to do a water flood? Does it make sense to maybe refrack it? Does it make sense to use CO2? Each one of those has a different cost and different benefit. And because our industry is so risk adverse, if you're an operator who's never done CO2 enhanced oil recovery, you'll go back to what you've always done, right? Which is something different. But CO2 is huge. Now, the cool thing about it in this CO2 adverse world, political world, let's say, one of the cool things about using CO2 for enhanced oil recovery is it locks the rocks. So now you've sequestered at CO2. Because of that, you're starting to see the CO2 business become big. And I think it's going to be big for the next 30 or 40 years. You're seeing ExxonMobil get heavily involved in it. Oxy's get heavily involved in it. And they're basically pulling carbon dioxide out of the air, storing it, moving it around the world and using it for enhanced oil recovery at the same time sequestering that oil in the reservoir so they can tell the world, look, we locked up the CO2 or we're lowering our CO2. We'll be net zero because of this, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of money and a lot of science and a lot of 
renewed interest around CO2. So you're absolutely right. And the reason it's not used more is it's economics. Where it makes sense, it's going to be used. And where it doesn't, it won't. Now, the cost of using CO2 should start going down for enhanced oil recovery. So you're probably going to see it used more and more. So if you personally have an interest in this, study it. Because it's going to be a big demand for right. geo guys that understand oil recovery using CO2. Okay. So the next question is, I have had a few interviews with operating companies, but have not landed a job or an internship yet. Any tips on ambitious young scientists trying to make a good impression and get into the industry? Three tips. Network, network, network. You need to get out. And I know it's hard because you're a student. I don't know if you work in a side job or whatever, but you need to find those organizations that these operators are members of. You need to go volunteer, you know, API, SPE, whatever. But be very careful. Don't just volunteer for anything. Look at what the event is and look who's attending. Your only focus here is to meet people that work for the operators that you want to go work for. So don't look at this as a learning event. Don't look at this as a way to get free drinks. Use this as almost like a work assignment. Your job is to make relationships with the operators you want to go work with. Your homework is to look at the organizations that these operators belong to and then look at the individual events and see which ones they're going to. Then go volunteer for that. You could network at a much more efficient level by doing that. And that will help you get in the door. Now, with all that said, most probably somebody's not going to hire you at an SPE event, right? You're still going to have to go through HR. Still have to go online and fill out the stupid HR, all the fields of your resume that you just uploaded anyway. That's the work part of going through this. But I would network as much as you possibly can, but specifically with the companies that you want to go work for. I hope that helps, Ben. All right. Michael Cropo asks... Hi, Mark. I've been listening to the show for over a year as I have only recently broke into the industry. Love the show and have recommended it to multiple peers. I have an intense data-driven process to form my view on market and fundamentals, so I'd like to know what data you have reviewed to form your stance on climate change. You have commented a few times on your opposition to the belief in climate change stemming from human behavior, so it'd be helpful to look at specific data you have reviewed to form that analysis, seeing how both climate change deniers and climate change activists could draw different conclusions would be very insightful. Thanks and keep up the fantastic work. I love this. This is what we need more of people questioning and looking at Everything. the actual real data. Yeah. All right. So a couple of things. So some of the information I pull up on is experience. So things like the four laws of thermodynamics, that goes in almost everything I look at. Other things are historical. So you remember in eighth grade when you learned that Asians walked to North America and that's where the native populations came from. They walked across something called the Bering Land Bridge, mm -hmm. right? Well, that was about 15,000 years ago. How could they walk from Asia to here? You can't do that now. They did it because the sea level was lower. How much lower? About 300 feet. Why was the sea level 300 feet lower? Did it spring a leak somewhere? No, that was the end of our last ice age. So since that was the end of our last ice age and there was so much ice in the world that the ocean shrank by 300 feet and people could walk here from Asia, some of it's common sense. Doesn't it make sense that we're warming up since then? And what is that rate? The other thing that I look really hard at is some of the information that you see that's collected by different organizations out there. You look at NOAA, which is what North, it's our weather people, right? You can go in and pull data sets from NOAA, and they'll show you things about maximum and minimum temperature ranges in the U.S. Here's an interesting one that I keep in my pocket all the time. If you look at all 50 states of the U.S., and you go to NOAA and check this out, the number of max temperatures, so that's basically the days where the temperature got higher than it's ever done before, they had 39 of them in 1960. Okay, do you want to guess how many they've had in, since 2000? Mm. Six. 
Yeah. Now, if you watch the news, they'll tell you the world's burning up. But according to the data, most of the high temperatures that's happened in the U.S. happened in 1960 and earlier, and there's, which was 39. There's only been six of them that's happened in recent history. And then the other one I, I spent a lot of time really digging into is the CMIP. So when people talk about all these climate models and all these scientists agree on all these different climate models, first thing, there's 150 valid climate models. I've looked at every single one of them. There's a lot of those climate models that says that we're headed toward a, a next ice age. You hear about none of those, right? Mm -hmm. The one most people hear about is called CMIP-5, and that's Coupled Model Intercomparison Project something five, right? Now, I've dug very, very, very deep into this. A couple of things. In that climate model, they've done one of the things that a lot of pro-climate change scientists have done, whether on purpose or accidentally, is when something, when the math didn't work, they said something was broken. Right. So in this case, the troposphere temperatures in the CIP5 don't match up to satellite data. So they said, well, the satellite data is wrong. Now, the climate model right before this, CMIP4, they said the climate data from the satellites was right. That's a red flag, in my opinion. People, if we're going to touch climate change, it has to be 100% lockdown solid. Right. The other thing they do in the CMIP5 is They've shrunk the y-axis, and you see this a lot. You'll see um, graphs out there showing how the world's temperature has risen since the 1800s, but you don't see what it's done for the last 2,000 years. If you look at it for the last 2,000 years, it's basically steady, gradual increase in warming because we're coming out of our last ice age. But if you move it back to just the 1800s, it looks like it's dramatic. The reason it looks like it's dramatic is from 1300 to 1800, we had a mini ice age. So, of course, if you start measuring temperature at the end of the last mini ice age, it's going to look like a dramatic increase. They did the same thing with CMIP5 is they shrunk that axis, actually looking at surface temperatures. So if you expand that axis out, surface temperature rise is very gradual. They grab just a piece of that data, which, by the way, people, everything I'm talking about is open to the world. You can go to CMIP5. You can search for me, Mark LaCour, or OGGN2, and you can see that I've been a, a member. I've pulled data sets and I've used it. Here's one of the interesting, what is this guy's name? Michael. Michael. Here's one of the interesting, Michael. About 85% of the people I've researched that talk, that say they're climate scientists on social media that talk about this climate catastrophe have never even logged into CMIP5, which is the climate model most of them were talking about. So they've never even looked at the data sets in there. And I could go on and on and on and on. There's also some really cool stuff if you go out there and just do some generic Google searches. So search for this exact phrase, what has the strongest greenhouse effect? And if what you should pull up is that water vapor has the strongest greenhouse effect, which is true. The problem is so many people think CO2 has the strongest greenhouse effect that those searches, because Google tries to give you what you want, not what the truth is, those searches have been construed from search engine optimization to show you CO2. But if you search for what has the strongest greenhouse effect, you should see that it's water vapor. Once again, I sometimes go back to basic physics and science. So you look at CO2, it absorbs about 3% of the millimeter wavelength of light. So basically it absorbs 3% of the heat once light slows down. You look at water vapor and it absorbs about 70% of that energy, right? So water vapor is a much higher greenhouse effect. Now, the CO2 parts per million in our atmosphere is around 400, 410. Water vapor is about 25,000 parts per million. So obviously, using just basic physics, water vapor is a much higher greenhouse effect 
than CO2. And yet we don't ever hear about that. And that's, it's, it's almost hidden, right? And the reason it's almost hidden, once again, is for people searching for CO2 and greenhouse effect. That's part of the algorithm of Google. I also think it's been intentionally hidden. And the reason it would be intentionally hidden is there's no money to made for pulling water vapor out the air, mm-hmm. right? There's tons of money. I mean, we just talked yep. about pulling CO2. So you could go on and on, but basically take basic physics, basic biology, and basic history, right? So the earth that we know has been through at least five of these major ice age about every 20,000 years. So every 10 to 20,000 years, we go through an ice age. We've never met more than 20. We're at 15 right now without going to our next ice age. Combine that with some detailed analytics of the data sets, and you'll see there's a lot of inconsistencies. My point used to be that nobody's ever proven that man's activity has sped up the earth's warming, right? That I agree the earth is warming up because it's the pendulum swing in between ice ages, right? But nobody's ever proven. And after doing all this research for years from all the anti-oil and gas people that say I'm a climate denier, I will tell you right now, I know 100% without a doubt man's activity is not increasing our climate warming at all. I've done too much research. I've uncovered too many inconsistencies. I've also uncovered a lot of consistencies. You'll hear people talk about the massive change in weather events like forest fires. We've been measuring forest fires intensity and scope since the 1930s. And yet, if you go online, you only see it since the late 1980s. Why? Once again, they've shortened the x-axis in that there is a spike in wildfires from the 1980s till now. But if you look at it for as long as we recorded, it's actually went down very much, like dramatically. Same way with weather impacts to humanity. In the last 100 years, climate-related deaths have dropped 92%. 92% less people die of heat, cold, starvation, thirst than they did. We're headed to a wonderful place. The earth is greening up. We're having more wildlife. There's more whales than they've been since the 50s. There's more deer in North America than there's ever been. We brought the bald eagle back, the manatee back. Countries are being able to grow more crops than they could before. We're headed toward beauty, right? And yet there's a lot of people that want to peach doom and gloom. And Especially with that hurricane out there. <laughs> well, during December, it's December and we have a you know a hurricane out in the Atlantic. So, you know, of course, that's climate change. So climate change is normal. The earth isn't static. Our weather is a static. And then, you know, finally, there's some like just common sense stuff out there. So how did all these organizations in the 1970s convince the world that burning fossil fuels increased particulates in the atmosphere, which reflected sunlight, which was going to cause us to go into the next ice age. That was not that long ago that all these climate scientists said that we're going to the next ice age. Same way with the holding of ozone, and I could go on and on and on and on. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I've given you some of the resources. I use a lot of the same exact resources that the climate fanatics use. The difference with me is I don't just believe it. I actually dig into it. I actually download the data sets. I actually drop them in Power BI and crunch the numbers, which, like I told you, most of the climate scare tactic people on social media, most of the ones I've researched, have never even logged into the climate model they talk about. Huh. That's funny. So anyway, hopefully it was helpful, Michael. All right. Our next one is from Anonymous. Hi, Mark and Paige. Love your podcast on Spotify. Do you have any recommendations on where to go for an attorney to review oil and gas drilling participation program contracts? Can you make a personal recommendation on a good oil and gas attorney for a mom and pop investor? I am a Texas Aggie who doesn't have the have a petroleum <laughs> degree. I'm from computer science. But my Building was across the street from those guys. It is something I've always wanted to try, and it only took me 20 years in my IT career to get to the point where I can try it. I realize I've emailed you out of the blue, so in return, I would like to at least the very least offer any IT advice you 
you ever need. My area is software application and databases. Thanks and happy Thanksgiving. You shouldn't offer us IT help. <laughs> we take you up on it. And you don't want to be our IT helpers. But I really appreciate you reaching out. So for once, I am actually going to make a recommendation. I usually don't. Reach out to Austin Brister. He's at McGinnis. We've known them for a decade. They do incredible work. They're extremely honest, extremely transparent. They're cost effective. I'll actually reply to you anonymously, give you his contact information. But anybody else there that's looking for an oil and gas attorney or needs legal help, that's you know McGinnis Locksrick, I believe is the name of the firm. M-C-G-I-N-N-I-S. And the person you need to reach out to is Austin Brister, B-R-I-S-T-E-R. We'll also put links in the show note. And no, I'm not getting a commission on that. They're just that good. Yeah, yeah. They keep us up to date on stuff. It's really neat. So, okay. Next one is from Rebecca Talmer. I feel like she's written in before. Regulatory Compliance Specialist to What's Up at Hill Corp. Wait, before you uh, keep going, do you only say what's up to the specialist too? You don't say No, it's regulatory. <laughs> these are my these are these my are people. Peaks? Yeah. Yeah. This is my favorite podcast in the world. <laughs> I love the chemistry between you two. Plus, I like how you take things that are super complex and make it very easy to understand. That's mostly Mark. Two questions. Paige, what is going on with the SEC proposing new rules to make climate related disclosures mandatory for investors? Well, let's go with it's running a little behind. They had some issues with people posting comments and have had to, I guess there were glitches in their system. So whenever they went in to make people make comments about it, it didn't get recorded. So they've had to extend that date twice. It just wrapped up on November 1st. So it's not expected to go into effect until early 2023. So we'll just have to see how that goes. And then number two, Mark, what is it like working with Paige? <laughs> Have you ever bathed a cat? <laughs> <laughs> so working with Paige is phenomenal. She's articulate. She's from the industry. She's a salt of the earth. She's funny as hell. Just the best co-host. If you look at the history of this show, we have had substantially more audience growth since Paige came aboard than anybody we had in the past, not to mention all the wonderful reviews we get. So there's nobody else on this planet I'd want to co-host this show with. Aww. I'm not blowing smoke. It's legit. Aw, that's sweet. She can be a firecracker, though. Well, I think everybody knows that. I think everybody knows that. And you're not the first person to call me that. When I worked for, I'm not going to name the pizza place, but the CEO was just like, you're a firecracker. Yeah. So, and that's what he called me for the next four years that I worked there. So I will tell you this much, though. If you're ever someplace and some argument starts and you need somebody to watch your back. (laughs) (laughs) I will fight somebody. Paige is that person. Yeah. So, but anyway. All right. Next question is from Josh. Love the podcast. Just wanted some clarification on the strategic petroleum reserve. Are the barrels actually physically added to the market to add to global supply? Are they just added on paper? to artificially add supply. Thanks and keep up the awesome work. Unfortunately, Josh, they're added to the market. I wish it was on paper. Then I wouldn't be so worried about our nation's security. Yeah, they're added to the market. There's a whole, as usual, 400-page contractual agreement (laughs) with the U.S. government on buying these barrels. The rates are set by the U.S. government. But yeah, they're put on the market. So when I tell you our strategic preserve is at historic lows, it's physically doesn't have enough oil there. It makes me so nervous, Mark. It really does. It makes me so nervous. Okay, so last question uh, is from Surf Addict, which is actually, he's left a review before, or they have. Mark Page, what are your thoughts on Slumberger? <laughs> <laughs> Seems like obvious pandering for ESG nut job investment to me. Cheers. 
So I'm not going to say obvious pandering, but yes, I think I said this on the last show. I don't know. Actually, we've lost. Episode. No, we saw it on the last. We said on the last so show. So it went out? Yeah. It, okay. It, well, no, it goes out tomorrow. Okay. Sorry. So I've said this before. They have such fantastic brand recognition, name recognition in the industry here in the U.S. for sure, but especially in the Middle East. And I cannot believe that they changed. I would have been okay with a refresh of their logo. And of course, I know who SLB is because it's the domain name for all their email addresses, right? So when I email somebody at Slumberjay, it's it's whatever, whatever at SLB.com. But it's also one of the ways you can tell if people work in the industry. If they call it Slumburger, you know they don't work in oil and gas, mm-hmm. right? So I agree with you. It's a mistake. that I can't believe that somebody convinced Slumberjay to change the name to SLB. That was just wrong. Is it pandering? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not calling it SLB. I'm okay. calling it Slumberjay. Anyway, on to This Week in Petroleum. This is your thing. I love this. So listen to this. Guess what happened this week in 1905? You won't guess. I'm going to tell you. University of Kansas professors Hamilton Cady and David McFarland figured out there was helium in natural gas, spurring the U.S. helium industry. November 28th, inventor Duray wins first U.S. auto race, six of America's first motor cars that did a 54-mile race in Illinois through the snow and back. He received $2,000 for winning the first race. And guess what he did with that $2,000? Hmm. He opened the first gas station. Woo-woo. <laughs> then <laughs> Magnolia Petroleum Incorporates in Corsicana. I don't even know where that is. Corsicana, Corsicana Te- Texas. Yeah. You don't know where Corsicana is? No. It's by Dallas. Okay. And then finally, whoa, this is cool. 1947, first oil well drilled out of sight of land. The modern offshore oil and natural gas industry began in the Gulf of Mexico. The first well successfully completed out of sight of land by Brown and Root, which later became Kellogg Brown and Root, which was later bought by Big Red, Halliburton. Oh, really? Yeah. How cool is that? That's some great history. What part of the Gulf of Mexico was it? They what? didn't say it. Back then, they weren't blocks. So it was just Well, I was just going, I was just thinking, it's probably Louisiana, huh? You know, I don't know. Louisiana's shelf is probably one of the easiest places in the Gulf to drill, so right. probably. Yeah, that's why I was they thinking didn't that. Say. Yeah. But anyway, that's our Week in Petroleum History. Woo-woo. Speaking of woo-woo, if you want to advertise with us, we have a new way to do it. Go to OGG.com forward slash pricing. All of our options, all of our pricing are laid out there for you to see. We don't, speaking of good salesmanship, we don't hide anything. We're very transparent in our pricing and what you get for it. Weekly rig count page, where are we? Uh, it's looking good. The United States is at 784, no change. Canada is at 195, up one. Internationally, we're at 910, down one. Yeah, all good, Can't complain about that. All good strong numbers. And if you want to continue to learn what we're doing, hang out with us whenever we do live events, easiest thing to do is go to LinkedIn, find our company page, sign up. We're over 50,000 people. Cool. It is cool. It really is. And speaking of signing up for stuff, if you like the first Friday Q&A, either go to oilandgasthisweek.com or OGGN.com. Both have places for you to ask questions. Remember, if it's a weird question, we're not going to answer it. <laughs> and the goal is not to stump Paige and I, but to help educate our audience. I like it when y'all try to stump Mark, though. I'm <laughs> no, not going to lie. No, no, no. We're, the goal is not to try to stump Mark. And then finally, if you want my monthly oil and gas events newsletter where we take all the oil and gas events, plus sometimes secret free stuff, just go to the show notes, click on it. We take everything, put it in your inbox once a month in a newsletter. We don't charge you anything. And then finally, if you're like myself or any of our experts to come speak, like me speaking at the Coke Drum Forum tomorrow, <laughs> reach out. I'd be happy to share the details with that. Whew, that's a lot. You ready to get out of here? Yeah. Remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. 
Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.